0: We are in the book of Daniel, we'll be in chapter four this morning, and we've been here uh, for an introduction week, chapter one, two, three, and chapter four, we're taking it one at a time. Uh, And this week, we're not going to read straight through like we have been, I'm going to kind of give some commentary throughout, uh, and we'll kind of see where it goes. Uh, I'm excited about this, and it's kind of a weird story to be excited about. But we've seen so much go on in this book so far, and it's, uh, it's a very adventurous book altogether. Um, it's packed full of highlights, though, because this is 70 years of Daniel's life, 70 years of exile, and these major things we're seeing happen. It wasn't like his every single day. So there's, there's decades in between these things. Uh, so it's important for us to remember that as we look here, because if we're making all these comparisons and seeing our life. It doesn't look a lot like the book of Daniel. I mean, we may never see uh, someone in, in a fire but not being consumed. I would say it's likely no one's going to see that. And not just because it's a miracle of God that happened this one time in history, but because we, we are a part of a story. It's not like every human being, every Christian even, like every person's story is going to be filled with these miraculous things but every single person in this story is a part of a much greater story the story of Christ and so that's why every week we've t- we've been intentional to see this is an old testament book about this man Daniel and his life and and last week he wasn't even in the story so it's not even just about him but everything about this book is a testament of Jesus it's all about Jesus and so the story today we're going to see pretty clearly it's not about any man no matter how great the man is It's about Jesus. And if we don't go into it thinking rightly, then we're going to easily try to make it about us. So the temptation is strong. In fact, the temptation for us to be prideful is so strong, we don't even realize it's happening. We're filled with these insecurities that we're not good enough, and so we pile onto our lives all these different things to make ourselves more so that we'll be more appreciated or more valued by those in our lives. We're desperate to cling to people We're desperate to be thought high of. We we lie to ourselves and try to think higher of ourselves than we do ourselves. It's such a gripping thing. And so my desire today as we walk through this text is that you'll see most clearly who our God is. Because who you are in Christ is what matters. Not just who you are. It's not your story that matters. It's not my story that matters. It's the story of God. And there's so much freedom to be enjoyed there. Because a life of pride, no matter what, what it looks like on the outside, is a miserable life. Because it cripples us and it destroys us. And so we see a very vivid telling of that in Daniel chapter 4. Overall though, this story is a good story. Overall, it's a testimony. <clears throat> in fact, it's a testimony of one of the greatest kings that's ever lived. One of the greatest rulers ever to walk the face of the earth is Nebuchadnezzar the second. We just know him as Nebuchadnezzar. And this is his personal testimony. So we're about to hear in the word of God the testimony of a pagan king. It's pretty ridiculous. He's, he's issuing a decree to all the land. He wants everyone to know about what happened in his life. And so it's likely Daniel's the one writing this out for him, but it's most of it is in the first person. Most of it is Nebuchadnezzar telling his story. Alright, so Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar to all people, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. So this is our greeting to the world. And he can do that because he's the ruler of the known world. So it's like the president saying, I'm going to, have a press conference. I want the entire world to see it. He has the authority to do that. So he's issuing this out to all people of every nation, and every language who who are under his rule so that everyone would know. And so you can imagine they could be thinking just like this last chapter. Here we go again. Nebuchadnezzar, egocentric. He wants us to worship him. But that's not at all what happens. Verse 2. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs. How mighty His wonders. This is a song. He's busted into a song here. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. This is amazing. This this is also a little bit weird. This is Nebuchadnezzar we're talking about. The same king who demanded people worship Him is singing praises to a, a kingdom beyond His. A king beyond him. This guy has conquered the world. He rules it all. So early on when he was first bringing in the, the Jews, he would only had started this mission. But by this point in his life, everything is his. He's even taken down Egypt, one of the greatest kingdoms in the world. And so now all of it's his. And he's, he's saying to all of them, praise the Most High. Because everything is his. And his kingdom lasts forever. This song of praise to a higher authority, a greater kingdom from a man who thought he was everything. This, is, this should be causing you to think, how in the world did this happen? And it's a good question to ask because that's what he goes on to tell you. In verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. So to be at ease, side note, I hope it's okay with you that I just keep interrupting myself as I'm reading. It's going to happen the entire time, so it's not okay. Let's just take a moment to let it be okay. All right, so he's at ease in his house. It doesn't mean he's just chillaxing, right? He's not just laid out on the, on the futon. I don't imagine he had a futon. He's a king. Anyway, he's not just relaxing. That's not what he means, at ease. He means I have total peace. There's not an ounce of anxiety in my life. There's no fear of anything. Why? Because I'm the emperor of the world. Everything is mine, he's, and he's prospering. This Hebrew word means growing green. The New American Standard translated flourishing. It, everything's going his way. It's continuing to get better. All is well in the kingdom, and he has nothing to worry about. So he's at ease. Now, this is two or three decades after, <clears throat> after the fiery furnace incident. Uh, so, so Daniel has, has, is using this as like a major marker in his life. That's what each chapter is. So this major event in the middle of their exile, sometime after halfway through their exile, the king has, has built this empire greater than anything in the world. So he's laying on a bed more luxurious than any bed in the world. He's got everything at his right hand, everything he could possibly want, every indulgence any man could ever want. This man has it. The world's greatest everything is at his disposal. The world's greatest army is there to protect it. Nothing comes against Babylon. This is the kind of ease he's feeling. At ease in his own home. He has no anxiety about anything. Nothing can take his comfort is what he's thinking. Yet he has a dream that scares him out of that comfort. And it shows him he's not really in control. So verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree, because that's what kings do, that all the wise men in Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of my dream. So he didn't learn from the last time he had a dream and everyone failed him. So for whatever reason, he, he invites these magnificently incompetent wisdom men into his, his chambers. And he says, hey, tell me about this dream. Tell me what it is like he did last time. And and they failed him like they did last time. Verse 7, the, the magicians and the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and, told, and I told them the dream, but they could not make it known to me. Or it could even be that they didn't want to make known the interpretation. Like maybe they had some idea what it could possibly be, but they didn't want to make any guesses because this, this guy has a history of just putting people to death when they disappoint him. Verse 8, at last... Daniel came in before me. So it's apparent Daniel doesn't associate with the pagan magicians. He's not hanging out with the other, the other wise men of the kingdom. He's coming in separately. He, in fact, it's, he's probably sent of God at this time. I say probably. He's definitely sent of God at this time, at the right time, after everything has failed Nebuchadnezzar. Then in comes Daniel, Daniel to the rescue. And he who is called Belshazzar, remember that's his Babylonian name, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Now this is significant. This this word gods is the Hebrew word Elohim. You've probably heard it. Elohim is the plural form of the word God, El. Elohim is also the name we call God, our God. Elohim is the name we find in Genesis. It's the first name God gives us to describe Himself. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So it's plural because God exists in Trinity, but it's also it's often put with these singular verbs and singular sentence and put in a position in a sentence that makes it singular. So it's a plural word used as singular, and so we know it's talking about this one God. But since Nebuchadnezzar's telling this story, he says, spirit the this definitive article, the spirit of the holy god. So it's kind of confusing to him still, out working out his paganism. He has a plurality of gods, uh, but then also Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing something that no one has ever done in the history of pagan theology. No one has ever called any pagan god holy, so he 's recognizing something here in Daniel. the spirit of a, a god unlike any other Elohim is in Daniel, so he's, he says, then walks Daniel, who can he can tell me what my dream means, and I know this because the spirit of the holy Elohim is in him. And people should be aware of the Spirit of God in the people of God. So this is, this is indicative of who we should be in the eyes of the world. They should know who the church is. And unfortunately, we're often known for things we don't want to be known for. And I told him the dream saying, O oh, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians. Now, magicians isn't like David Blaine. It's... It's wisdom. So it's it's not magic. It's wisdom and knowledge. Men who could do something that others can't do. And sometimes they would conjure up different ways of interpreting dreams and things like that. So that's where this idea of magician has been used in our culture. But he's the chief of the magicians because he's the best of those who can do what he does. Because he has a living God working with him. Um, Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Verse 10. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found their shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So so far, so good. This is a good dream. Everything's going the direction you would want it to go. Seems to be the world's happy. Everyone's taking shade under this incredible tree. This massive tree that reaches to heaven. Reminds us of the the Tower of Babel built in this same land. It reaches to heaven. And the shade of this tree takes care of all the creatures of the earth. And the branches are, are where the, the birds of the air will make their nests. And there's food for everyone to eat in abundance. So this incredibly self-centered king, no doubt, is thinking, I must be that tree. He has to be thinking it. Everything's about him. He's egocentric. So that's why it's about to get scary for him because in verse 13... I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, a messenger of heaven, an angel of the Lord. Verse 14, He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. So we're talking about a tree that has been the home and provision for the world being chopped down. I'd say there's a bit of a reason to be concerned here. And the Holy One continues. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound it with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. So the roots are staying in the earth. There's there's chance that life will return. Not only that, but there's a, there's a band of iron and bronze like a fence of protection around this stump. And it's amid the tender grass of the field. So, We should treat this this stump tenderly. We should protect it. Keep it from harm. Even though the tree's gone, even though the tree's chopped down, let's protect it. And then something interesting happens. Let him is the next two words. So him, the messenger, makes it masculine. We're no longer talking about a tree. I don't know if anyone refers to trees as hymns. The tree over there is so beautiful. Look at him. No one does that. So there's a change here. We're no longer talking about what. We're talking about who. So if Nebuchadnezzar wasn't thinking this must be me, surely now he's thinking this is a person. It's not a tree. It's a person. This mighty tree is a person who will be reduced to a poor reflection of his former glory, a stump in a field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let, his, and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. This is judgment for a great man represented by this tree. Though though this tree was doing good, it housed the animals of the earth, it fed all the creatures of the earth. It would become like uh, like a beast. This man would become like a beast of the field though he housed all the animals he would become like an animal his mind would no longer be this this brilliant mind that is king Nebuchadnezzar's mind but why to what end and he tells him at the end of verse 17 to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men the most high the authority above all. So last week we talked about how Nebuchadnezzar refers to God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as the most high God. This isn't an uncommon term. It incorporates this word Elohim uh, along with another Hebrew word. I'm trying to be intentional not to pronounce the Hebrew and Greek words as we walk through scripture because first of all I don't want to be one of those guys but also I don't think you need to be going around talking Hebrew and Greek so it's just not that necessary but Elohim is one you can know so there's another Hebrew word attached to it that makes it the most high. And that word is often used alone, and it still alone refers to the most high. Now for a pagan guy, so it happens most often when, when a man of God is speaking to a pagan nation, those who worship uh, plural gods. So he, they call him the most high God, although when it's used most, it's, it's God most high, because it, the nuance is necessary. It's God most high. So He's God. And he's most high, not he's the most high God, which makes you think there's more gods. But for Nebuchadnezzar, he always says it in that way, most high God. But he stopped. He's not saying that anymore. He's saying the most high because he's quoting this angel from his dream. The most high. There's only one God. And he is most high. Most high over every false god, but also most high over every authority, every king. There's nothing higher. He is the most high. And it's necessary that all the people of the earth know it's not about this tree, it's about the most high. He's in authority over all authority, and He gives authority to anyone who has authority. So this tree is being lopped down for this very purpose. This is the point of this chapter. It's also the point of Daniel, the book. In every way, it's about the Most High. And this is why we have this chapter in the Bible. So that we would know, that all people of the earth would know that the Most High is the ruler of all things. And He sets the lowly men in authority. The dream ends with this quote. And, and Nebuchadnezzar Seems to have all that he needs to figure this out. If he couldn't do it, surely one of his wise men could have done it. Yet no one yet has told him what this dream means. So he's counting on Daniel. Verse thirteen, verse thirteen, verse eighteen. <laughs> this dream, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So, three times he says that. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. So, Daniel isn't confused because he doesn't know the interpretation, he's distressed because he does know it. And he's got to tell the king of the world what this dream means. And the king recognizes this in Daniel, so he, he says, the king answers and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. What's going on here? This is an exclamation point. This is Daniel with sincere compassion for the king. He's expressing this. He doesn't want this to be true, but he knows it's from the Lord. He wishes it we're on the king's enemies. So it's apparent here that, that Daniel cares for the king. He has a heart of compassion for this king, who has taken him into slavery, who's taken all of God's people into Babylon. this man who's threatened his life and his friends' lives and demanded he be worshipped. Daniel cares for him. He's expressing, he's expressing compassion for him, a genuine compassion. But he knows he must be honest. He must speak the truth to the king. So he does in verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches birds of the heavens lived, it is you. O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. It sounds like flattery, but they both know what's coming. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in, in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O King. It is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. So we don't know definitively how long this took. It says seven periods. And interestingly, in the Bible, the number seven represents completion. So seven periods in in the The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is an ancient book. It's very accurate in a lot of ways. This word period is translated years. So many scholars believe it was seven years precisely. But I I don't know definitively that's what it is because it's not clear in the Hebrew. And I don't know Aramaic, which is the language it was written in. So it's certainly seven periods of time. But because of this biblical representation of the number seven, we know for sure it was as long as it took for it to be complete. So what, what God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar is for seven periods, for as long as it takes for you to get this, until it's completed, you will be like a beast. Verse 26, and it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots, or to leave the stump of the root of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So Just as the stump is to remain protected, Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom will be protected and preserved for him. God will preserve the kingdom to return to him after this period of humiliation until he recognizes that the kingdom of God is the greatest kingdom. Until he sees the Most High truly is Most High. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. So he's pleading with him now. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. In verse 28, all, the, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the 12 months. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So, 12 months of time have passed since this happened. So, the dialogue between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar ended with Daniel pleading that he would repent. So, just to be clear, this arrogant king who thinks so highly of himself has received the mercy of God throughout his life as king and seen the miracles of the Most High, demonstrating his power and authority over all creation, doing things that no one on earth could possibly do, that no false God could do because they're false. So Nebuchadnezzar in his life has seen by the mercy of God, the power of God. And given this dream here in chapter 4, he's given this dream by the mercy of God to say, here's what's going to happen. He told him, warning, you're going to see a downfall. There must be repentance. You must see I'm most high. You must stop boasting in yourself. And just in case he didn't get it, Daniel, by the mercy of God, was sent to Nebuchadnezzar to say, here, look, This is the interpretation. And here's the instruction. Repent. Show mercy to those who you're oppressing. Stop doing what you're doing that God would demonstrate grace to you and allow you to continue to be prosperous. Because it's only by His mercy that you're anything. See that. Clearly see that. Repent. Do what is right. Do what is good. And be spared this humiliation. And then, by the mercy of God... He's given 12 more months to repent, to turn from thinking so highly of himself, from boasting in his accomplishments. God has been abundantly merciful to this man. Yet, in verse 30, as he's walking along the roof of the royal palace, the king answered and said, After all this time of reflection, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty works as a royal resident and for the glory of my majesty? Still, very clearly, boasting in himself, looking out on his great kingdom, and make no mistake, this is a great kingdom, and there's a lot to boast in. Nebuchadnezzar is a brilliant and powerful ruler of the known world, he's done things no king on earth has ever done. He's conquered everything. In this 20 or 30 years since the the furnace, He truly has power over all people. And this this great empire He's built, that He's looking out on, holds some of the greatest wonders in history. Like the first skyscrapers were in this city. They didn't look like the ones we have today. they were more like rectangles, smaller rectangles stacked on top of that, but he did it 30 stories high. It was a building in Babylon. And he's looking out on it. He's got his dad's palace, but he's, he's standing on the bigger and better palace that he built. And there's a third one that's to come in the future. This, this empire is massive. It takes over the world. And beauty that we can't even imagine. Gold everywhere. The hanging gardens. One of the seven wonders of the world that he built for his wife. He's standing on top of it all. And it's his. No wonder it's entered his mind and his heart that he is the greatest. No wonder his thoughts are, isn't this my Babylon? Isn't this what I've built by my power? And it's for my majesty. He's decided, I'm not going to bow to any God no matter what they show me because look what I have. Look what I've done. In verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, While the words were still coming out of his mouth, humiliation fell upon Nebuchadnezzar. He became like a beast. He lost his mind. The removal of his authority was immediate because the sovereign one, the Most High, has the authority to remove it because he is the one who gives authority to men. The rulers of the world are only in authority by the grace of God, according to the will of God. And Nebuchadnezzar had exalted himself above God in his own mind. He thought so highly of himself, but not only that, he was an evil man. He was malicious in many ways, he was a merciless oppressor of people. He demanded they do what he said always and threatened them with death if they refused. In chapter 2, we saw that he was so angry that these men failed to interpret his dream that he would have them killed. In chapter 3, we saw that if they refused to bow, he would have them thrown into a furnace. In fact, he did it to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If not for the, the power of the Most High, they would have been consumed by the flames. And so that was only an attempt. But according to Jeremiah 29, we know that he did roast some Jewish men. And he was particularly malicious towards other kings because he didn't want any authority coming against his. So he didn't just kill the kings. He tortured them. He enslaved them. He imprisoned them. In 2 Kings 24, we learn that he imprisons King Jehoiakim, who was only 18 years old. He'd just taken on the throne, and he was brought into Babylon imprisoned, and we don't hear anything about him for decades. So he's just in jail, rotting. In 2 Kings 25, we see that King Zedekiah, who took Jehoiakim's place, was captured by Nebuchadnezzar because he failed to do what he was ordered to do. He was brought before the king and he had his sons brought in and slaughtered in front of him. And then Nebuchadnezzar plucks out his eyes so that the last thing he sees physically is his sons killed before him. Some wicked stuff. This is an evil man. He does whatever it takes to make everything his and everything about him. I share that with you just in case you were for some reason feeling sorry for this dude. In every way, because of his arrogant heart, he deserves this. But our merciful God has given him time after time to see his sin. He's demonstrated for him. we We have people say, if God will just show me this sign, then I'll believe. It's evident in Scripture that's not the case. No one has seen signs greater than Nebuchadnezzar has. Yet he still refuses to see that the Most High is greater than he is. So he deserves this judgment. In verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Now this seems a little bit crazy, I know. Like a lot of things that happen in the Bible. But interestingly, the DSM, which is the diagnostic book for psychiatrists and psychologists, the DSM refers to this condition as clinical lycanthropy. It's a thing. Now, that's, they've revised it, and it's since been put as a subscript to uh, schizophrenia, but clinical lycanthropy is where we get this idea of werewolf. So a lichen is what a werewolf is called lycanthropy is anthropy, man, like an like werewolf or wolf, is a beast man, right? So it's a clinical condition that scientists have, have said this is an actual thing. So it's, it's primarily a psychiatric issue. The symptoms are psychiatric. The, he's losing his mind. He's thinking like a beast. He actually feels like he's an animal. So he begins to behave like an animal. And God has ordered that they would put a fence around him. They would protect him. They would keep him safe from the harm of other nations. They would keep this on the down low so that no one comes and tries to overtake Babylon. They preserve his throne. So no one takes on the throne in this period of time that he's lost his mind. And lycanthropy also has some some semantic uh, uh, manifestations. So this eagle's feather hair, like this growing out of hair. It's not just his hair grew long, but... Physically, he begins to look like a beast. His claws are growing out. And there's even some cases where the teeth are sharpened, whether they do it themselves or just something happens where the mind controls the body in a way that they begin to behave and look like an animal, all right? This is it's a real thing. I know it's crazy. It's a real thing. And it, but all of that, we don't need the proof of science to say that this happened because the Bible says it happened. So all of that aside, what we know is certain is that this incredible phenomenon happened. As this man was boasting in himself, God gave him the mind of a beast. This horrific experience was given to him by God. This suffering, this humiliation that all the people of his kingdom would know about was given to him by God. And then comes his beautiful restoration. We have this beautiful ending here. This testimony given by the king himself. So we're turning to the first person in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. What a wonderful phrase. So much more than just he looked up. Like this beast in a field looks up. He lifted his eyes to heaven. He's he's realizing something here. He's submitting to the authority of God. He's lifting his eyes to heaven. It's almost as if he knows the Psalm 121, the song of ascent. Lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my hope come from? My hope comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is Elohim. He's looking to the Creator, He's lifting his eyes to heaven. After seven periods of, of this humiliation, of this suffering as a beast, not having any control of his mind, eating grass from the field, living out in the wild under the dew of the earth, he lifts his eyes to heaven. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, lift my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And he busts into another song. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is formatted by the translator as this refrain, as this poem. And we see it throughout the chapter. This praise to the Most High God. He wants all the world to know that the Most High rules. The Most High has ultimate authority. Verse 36, At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. So this is this this is distinctly different from him boasting in himself. He sees it coming from not himself. These things are added to him. These things were given to him as gifts, as blessings. Complete restoration, but also even more. He was a greater ruler. Greatness was added to him. All that he once had, he has again, but even more. And And not just more, but in a different way. He's receiving it with humility as a blessing from the Lord. This isn't the old king that we saw earlier. This isn't the king from chapter 3 or 2 or 1. This is someone different. This is a new perspective. This is a new heart. Even the times where he expressed praise to the Most High God in this flippant way in previous chapters, this is more sincere, more from who he actually is. This isn't him praising the Most High God of Daniel. This isn't him praising the Most High God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is him praising the Most High, period. I think we have reason to believe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven because of this chapter. It's crazy because we know who this man is. We know how wicked his heart is. Was. We see that God has done something miraculous and it took this extra effort for Nebuchadnezzar to really see it. But it was all in God's timing. It was all as it should be. And it was all from God. 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Beautiful. This is the last we hear of Nebuchadnezzar. This is his send-off. This is it. And his final words are this praise to God who is able to do what no man can do and what no false god could accomplish. We have so many problems in our lives. We have so many problems in our relationships. This tension we feel with other people. This pressure we feel to meet other people's standards or to meet these ridiculous standards we place on ourselves. This anxious life we live because we're trying to maintain our image because we fail to see our image is found in Christ. We're wrapped in the righteousness of God to repent of our prideful hearts. We have all these tensions even within the church and within our our nation and within the world. There's people starving. There's people dying because they don't have food in our world. There's people dying because they don't have water in our world. This is a reality. Right now, people are suffering and dying because of the greed of other people. We certainly have enough food and water to feed the entire world. Yet, we have people dying because of the greed and the pride of evil hearts. This has always been the problem. Pride has always been the problem. It started with Lucifer in heaven who thought he could be like God. In fact, he thought he was higher than God. The pride of his heart. He was cast out of heaven. And it was in the first people to ever walk the earth. The pride of their heart thinking they could be God. We're cast out of the garden. And it's been in our hearts ever since. That's what we talked about last week when we highlighted the egomania of this Babylonian king. And we talked about Romans 1. For for although we, we can make it personal, although we know God, we, we don't honor Him and give thanks to Him. We easily worship ourselves as idols. We're foolish in our hearts. and Our hearts are darkened. and We're claiming to be wise. And we become fools. This is our problem. Pride is our problem. And if it's not apparent in this story, it's apparent all throughout Scripture. The book we have on wisdom, Proverbs, God says often how much He despises the pride of men. Verse In chapter 21, chapter 16, chapter 8, chapter 29, chapter 11, and many others, I just pulled out these few. A proud heart is sin. Everyone, is arrogant. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, He will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. One's pride will bring him low. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. And the prophet Jeremiah writes on behalf of the Lord to these same thoughts. The Lord says, James writes of these very same things as he's considering the people of God and the New Testament church and how we function and think life is about us. He says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's warning to us. If you feel this distance from Proverbs and Jeremiah and you think that's for a different people, there's still no excuse. It's warning to us, the church. How dare we make life about us? How dare we structure things around my schedule, my time? I'm going to do these things and accomplish these things, and then I'll take care of the Lord's work. Why do we live every single day as if it's ours? Why do we go to bed thinking our rest is for ourselves? Why do we eat our food, stuffing our faces, whatever we desire, thinking our health belongs to us? Thinking how we spend our money belongs to us? When it's so clear that we're not our own in Scripture, it's so clear that the life we now live in the body, if we belong to Christ, is the life of Christ. That the old us is dead. Our selfish desires are gone. We have new desires. We have a new heart. We have new leanings. God hates pride not because He hates that we get to have our own lives and enjoy our own things and do whatever we want. He hates pride because it destroys us. He hates pride because it destroys forces us in these lives of this pressure to to achieve, to make much of ourselves. No one in this room is going to be Nebuchadnezzar. No one's going to conquer the world. But we've just seen a demonstration that even if you do, it's not enough. Even if you have it all, it's never enough. Because what's required of us is full submission to the Most High God. Not because He's egocentric, but because He's for our good. And He's the best possible thing there is. So if I were preaching this passage in James, or if I were preaching Jeremiah, if I were preaching these passages from Proverbs, I would use Daniel 4 as an illustration, because it's a wonderful illustration of those things. However, I'm preaching Daniel chapter 4. And though Nebuchadnezzar's uh, humiliation, him being humbled as this horrific experience so clearly demonstrates that we should not be prideful. I don't think that is primarily the point of chapter 4. It's definitely a sub-point. It's definitely a sub-theme. But I don't think that is primarily the point because if we follow the rules of interpretation, it's necessary that we consider what it means to these people at this time in exile. What would this Daniel chapter 4 mean to a Jew? I think it's unlikely that Israel, suffering in exile is in need of a lesson on humility when they're at their lowest of low. And I think it's even more unlikely that they would rightly be able to learn that lesson from the one who's oppressing them. So yes, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, but there's no aspiration in a Jew in exile to be like Nebuchadnezzar in any way. So in order to fully apply to the people in that time and then bring the application to us, I think it's most clear that the theme of this chapter is the theme of Daniel. I think that we see this connectedness as we consider who is sovereign over all things. Now, obviously, there's this theme of pride, and it is certainly an application for us, an illustration for us. But the purpose of telling the story of humiliation and restoration of Nebuchadnezzar is given to us in this chapter several times, but namely in verse 17, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, while our humility certainly factors into this, We, along with the people of God throughout history, can take solace, can have peace, can have great hope that the truth is the Lord has ultimate authority. So when we consider our place as exiles in this land or even as citizens of this country, we have great hope not in the government, not in tax breaks that we get, not in how we're going to take care of the needy based on the government system, but in a God who is sovereign over all of it and who has placed authority in their place. And so what that means is it's not, it, we need not think that our job is to rebel and be insubordinate and to boycott things in order to manipulate our leaders in doing what we think they should do. Now rather, we can trust God as sovereign in putting them in the positions of authority to make decisions that would protect the people. Now certainly because they're people, there's corruption. Certainly because they're people, they're going to go against the Bible in some aspects. And so should we rebel ever? Yeah, we definitely should rebel sometimes. There's certainly times when we should stand against what the government requires or what the nation requires or what the world requires of us if it stands against what God requires first and foremost of us. Certainly, we should say certain things do not belong and we will resist, as we saw in chapter one. However, we should never be motivated by vengeance or a desire to manipulate those above us in authority to do what we think we should do to make them do what we think they should do. It's not our place. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So we should submit to authority. That's what Daniel chapter 4 is calling us to do. Even though it doesn't explicitly say it, it says so clearly that no matter what, God is in control. No matter how corrupt the system gets, God is in control. So we should have hope and we should have peace and we should know that as long as they're asking us to do neutral things and good things, we should submit. Until they turn against who our God is. Now, moreover, trying to, to... to see the the sub-theme of humility worked into this, we should consider the grand narrative of Scripture. That God exalts the lowliest of men. And He is faithful, especially for His people, to put the lowliest of men in position. So if we ever, as the church, become puffed up and thinking we know better than everyone else, then that's becoming subjective and it's not dependent on the objective Word of God. If we think my experience, my denomination... My way of doing things is the way to do things. We're going against what we're called to come to. Submission not just to the authorities of earth, but ultimately submission to the authority of God and the Word of God. We should come back often to the Word of God. These questions we have about why we do things should be asked often. So we can come back to submitting ourselves to the authority of God. This feeling we have as the crossing church that somehow we would be better than blank church, whatever church it is. Or as a Southern Baptist denomination, we are better than other denominations. Or, that, or as an Acts 29 church, we'd be better than any other type of church plant. Or whatever it might be. Anything that enters your mind that for even a second makes you feel superior is of the devil. We need to kill it. Because God will humble the, pride, the prideful. God will humble those who boast in themselves. God will bring about humiliation for those who make much of themselves. And He will lift high the lowly man. He will lift high the humble heart. Not for that person, but for His glory. Because it's only with a humble heart that we will see disciples of Christ be made. It's only with a humble heart that we will see the lost come to worship Jesus and not worship the crossing. Or worship our way of doing things. It's with a humble heart that we'll see God exalted. That the Most High rules. It will, will declare most clearly. It's all about Him. And Isaiah prophesied this culmination of things is in the person of Christ, despised and rejected. Yet the Father allotted a portion to be a portion of greatness for this Messiah. That's Isaiah 53. And we see the Savior into the world not as a king, but as a child, as a baby. Not born in a palace, but born in a stable. Not born rich, but born to a poor family. Not, not born to a noble family that's notable that everyone in the land would, would know this must be the Savior, but to a virtually unknown girl who's not even married yet. This is the Savior of the world. And He was despised and rejected and crucified. And, and, and upon His resurrection, He claimed authority over heaven and earth because it belonged to Him. And this is the reason Nebuchadnezzar sings as he's telling this story. Because it's not just a story. He realizes something. This is the Most High God. He rules over all things. I'm nothing in comparison to this God. He has given me everything that I have. Any authority that I would have. Any reverence you would give me belongs ultimately to Him. And this is the song that's sang with the New Church in in the New Testament. This is the song that's sang about Christ. Who became nothing so that he could become our everything. This is the hymn penned by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. They actually sang this as a church, and we should sing it today. It should be the refrain in our lives that though he was in the very image of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So make no mistake, every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. And God will do whatever is necessary to bring you to that point if you belong to Him. That's why I say Nebuchadnezzar is likely a part of this family. Because God did whatever it took to humble him so that he would see what's true instead of giving him over to his mind and and condemning him to hell for eternity. So every every amount of suffering, everything you have to endure in life so that we will be humbled by this process to to worship God all the more and see that ultimately Christ was humbled more than any of us could ever be because He was in the very image of God. He is the Most High. And He took on flesh and became a man. And He humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross. And He now is exalted and given the name Yahweh, the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus all would bow. Every king to ever walk the earth bows. Even those who don't on this side of heaven bow and confess as Nebuchadnezzar did will bow before his throne before they're condemned to hell for eternity. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So church, I beg you, rid yourself of arrogance. Rid yourself of the pride. This is, this is the begging that Daniel did before Nebuchadnezzar, that we would see it's not about us. It's about the Most High. That we would find freedom in worshiping Him. That we would sing songs of praise because He is the Most High. Let's pray. Father, I praise You for what You've done in Your Word. Years ago in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, this work that You did to show Him who You are. And I thank You for Your mercy among us who no doubt deserve every bit of the same humiliation. God, we deserve eternal wrath. Yet You, being rich in mercy, have clothed us in the righteousness of Christ by no work of our own that we can't boast in ourselves. But let us sing praises. Give us a sense of joy in our salvation that we would praise You for for making us whole in Christ. That we would look at our lives and see the wicked heart and know that we've been given a new heart. That we would examine these these ongoing struggles with sin and our desires to worship things of the world. Our desires to boast in ourselves. Our desires to seek indulgences and, and creation. And let us repent quickly and see that You are better that Christ satisfies, that we have no need to look anywhere else for satisfaction. Let us see Your your great might and Your power over all creation, that we have no need to micromanage, to, to control our lives, but that we have freedom to rest in who we are in You, trusting You with our every day, with our every breath. And let us see Your grace abundant in our lives all around us, counting up the blessings, knowing that You do not stop blessing us because You have loved us with a love that is lavished upon us. That we are free to enjoy Christ, to pursue joy in Christ. We have no need to pursue it anywhere else. God, let us rejoice in knowing that we don't have to prove anything to You or to anyone else, but we have freedom because of Your grace. Praise You for the work You're doing. Let us cling to our faith in Christ. We wouldn't have to put our hope anywhere else. In Jesus' name, amen.